This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. And today's scripture reading is Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should count iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Amen. Amen. As I was preparing this week, uh, I came across a story of a lady named Catherine Ann Power, and she's an ex-convict and a longtime fugitive. And her accomplice, uh, her name is Susan, both of them were placed on the FBI's most wanted list in the 1970s. Uh, And the two of them are infamous for multiple bank robberies. And one of the robberies, um, Catherine was a getaway driver. She wasn't even the one who created, uh, who actually did this tragic um, incident. Well, while they were robbing in uh, a bank in Boston, one of the police officers was shot and killed. So it was her person, her uh, partner who actually did the shooting, but she was just the getaway driver. And about 23 years later, 23 years, years later, she got away with it. She eventually turned herself into the police. She said, his death was shocking to me, and I have had to examine my conscience and accept any responsibility I have for the event that led to it. Catherine Power was sentenced to eight to 10 years in prison, And there's many stories like this where criminals would come forward after a long time and admit their guilt. They would confess and they would turn themselves in. There was another criminal who who robbed banks and he got away with it. And for 20 years, he lived with that until eventually he went to the cops and turned himself in. And what he said to the cops was, I just could not live with the guilt anymore. I could not live with that guilt anymore. One of the most powerful feelings that we have in our experience is guilt. We've all had it. It eats away at us. And it leads us to do many different things. And today we're going to look at this psalm. And it addresses our guilt. And it's going to show us how we can deal with our guilt in our journey. How we can deal it in light of who God is, who we are, and what he promises for us. So we're going to look through this psalm and we're going to go from the cry from the depths to the grace from above, and finally we'll end with hope in the Lord. Cry from the depths, grace from above, hope in the Lord. So cry from the depths. I'm going to begin by asking you guys a question that might make some of us uncomfortable. Do you feel the guilt of your sin? Do you feel the guilt of your sin? In Psalm 129, we looked at last week, the psalmist, the pilgrim, He's confident, he's assured that God had brought him through many external afflictions. He was confident that God preserved him through those afflictions. He was confident that God heard him in those afflictions. 
And he was assured because God was with them. God was close to him in all these external afflictions. But as God's presence brought him comfort, it also brought about an internal affliction that came to light. And we see that here in 130. This internal affliction of sin and the guilt and shame that it brings. And he's in the depths. He's crying out to God. Let's look, look at verses 1 and 2 again. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. You can sense the desperation in his voice. He's in the pits. He's in the depths as he describes it. And the depths is an image of dangerous waters. It's a place of trouble and despair. Psalm 69 gives us a further description, a picture of being in the depths. It says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep. If you've all been swimming in the ocean before, um, you might be familiar with the ripped, uh, what is it, riptide, the strong currents, right? You could be just a little bit off the shore, your feet is on ground, you're having fun, and you decide to swim. And as you're swimming, for some reason, you notice yourself getting further and further away from the shore. And next thing you know, you try to plant your feet on the ground, and there's nothing there. What happens? You start to panic. You start to freak out. You're wondering what's going on. Just a minute, you were on solid ground, but now you're afraid that something bad might happen. Especially if you're a kid or a terrible swimmer, that panic sets in really quickly. Well, this is an image where you actually see the shore and it's not too far away, but imagine if you're out in the middle of the sea. No planes, no boats, no rescue team in sight, and the waters are up to your neck. You know you're in trouble. There's despair that comes over you. There's panic that comes over you. And this is what the psalmist is feeling here today over the guilt and shame of his sin. He's in the depths and he's crying out to God. Be attentive to my voice. Hear my cries, O Lord. He's very aware of this sin and the trouble that's brought upon his life. So again, I ask you, do you feel the guilt of your sins? Because if we're honest with ourselves, many times we don't. And why is that? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this about our inability to feel the guilt of our sin. He says, you will never make yourself feel that you are a sinner. Because there is a mechanism in you as a result of sin that will always be defending you against every accusation. We are all on very good terms with ourselves. And we can always put up a good case for ourselves. Even if we try to make ourselves feel that we are sinners, we will never do it. There is only one way to know that we are sinners. And that is to have some dim, glimmering conception of God. He says we're all on very good terms with ourselves. We're happy with who we are. We can always put up a good case for ourselves. We have a million excuses for our sins. What he's basically saying is we don't feel like our sinners because of our sin nature. We're really good at three different things in regards to our sins. We're really good at denial, we're good at rationalizing, and we're good at relativizing. Denial, right? There's an instinct in us that refuses that we could do anything wrong. Right? We lived a good life. We kept our noses clean. We stayed out of trouble. I couldn't possibly be guilty of sin. 
And then there's other of us who rationalize our sin, right? We might admit guilt, we might admit we do wrong, but then we shift the blame to someone or something, right? Yeah, I think I lied. I definitely lied. But you know what? I had every reason to. That person, if I told them the truth, it would have been, oh, just would have been terrible. I can't deal with that person. So I had, you justify yourself for the lie that you've done. And there's other times where we relativize our sin, right? If it, what you do here is you look at others. You look at others and say, everyone else does this, so it's okay that I do it. Or you look at those who are far worse and say, well, you know what, that felon in jail, look at what he's done. Compared to that, my sin is not that egregious. Now, I've been watching uh, this documentary on Netflix re- recently about cult leaders in Korea. And uh, if you guys have seen this, Man, there's some really, really disturbing things that these cult leaders have done in the name of God. And it's easy for us to look at these type of people who commit these atrocities and just be like, you know, relatively, I'm not that bad. And so you're not convicted of your sin. We see this in kind of the story of the prodigal son, right? We have the younger son. He asks for his inheritance. His father gives it to him. He goes to a foreign land. He squanders it. He realizes his mistake. He comes back home amidst his guilt, his father receives him with open arms. But then we look at the older brother, and we look at his response. It says this in Luke 15, 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, He has devoured your property with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him? The older brother, denial, right? I was good. Father, I listened to your every command. He can't imagine having done anything wrong. But of course he must have during his life. He rationalized, right? He's angry at his father. He has anger. And it's not a righteous anger. It's a bitter, jealous anger. But in his mind, it's justified. Because the situation is just so unfair. He deserves the fattened calf. And he relativizes his uh, sin the whole time, right? He's comparing himself to his brother who went off to the foreign land and squandered his brother's money. We deny, we rationalize, and we relativize. And it's our sin nature that prohibits us, that stops us from seeing our sin. And the only way to begin to realize that we're sinners as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is to begin understanding who God is and what his words say. We have to measure ourselves against God's standards. Look down with me in verse 3. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And this should mark iniquities can also be translated, if you watch over sins, Watch sins, implying that it's through the eyes of God. God is the standard of what sin is. So we have to be able to recognize what God considers sin and what God doesn't consider sin. And the psalmist is saying, if God held this record of all of our sins from the moment we were born to this very day, no one, no one could stand before him. We would all stand condemned. He's, this pilgrim is understanding who God is. He understands the situation. He understands that God is holy, righteous, and just. 
And you realize it's how incompatible human sin is in the eyes of a holy, just, and righteous God. Imagine for a moment a highlight reel of your past week. But it's a reel not of your accomplishments, your joys, and successes. But it's your highlight reel of all the offenses and sins that you've committed this week. Every action, every word, every thought and desire against God put on a highlight film. Every time you idolized your career, your family, your possessions, you envied your neighbor, told a lie, gossiped, lusted, hated someone, you failed to love your neighbor, failed to forget, forgive all of this on a reel. And we decided every week at the end of service to show it on the screen. I would be the first to admit, I would much rather undergo some terrible torture than to have that reel played on the screen. And if every week we went through each and every single person's reel on the screen, the chairs in here would thin out very, very quickly. And if we can't stand in front of our own peers, how could we imagine that we could stand before God? And that's just the past week. Think about the past month, past year, your college days, your entire life. None of us could stand before God. And so the psalmist understands his plight. That guilt is driving him to the depths. I want to ask you guys, is guilt a good thing or a bad thing? Eh, it's tricky, right? Good can be a good thing. Good can be a bad thing. Guilt can be bad when it leads us to feelings of condemnation. Guilt, feelings of condemnation. It can be bad when it leads us to cover that guilt with unhealthy relationships, dependence on others, um, alcohol, substances. Fill in the blank with whatever you use to try to get rid of that guilt you feel inside. Guilt can be bad when it leads us to apathy and a hardened heart. Guilt can be bad when we try to find absolution from other people. There are a million different ways where guilt will turn us to bad things. But there's one thing that if we turn to, guilt actually becomes a really good thing. And it's what the psalmist does in these first three verses is turn to God. If your guilt is driving you into the depths, turn to God. It's only God who can absolve us. It's only God who can forgive us. And it's God who hears our cries as we are in the depths of our guilt and sin. Psalmist knows there's nowhere else to turn but God. And so church, if you've been feeling the guilt of your sin, don't be discouraged. In fact, take heart. Be, be encouraged by it. If it drives you to God, it will be a good thing. It's a sign that the light has come into your life, that God is working in you. Because in the darkest depths of our sin, we are never too far down for the Lord to hear our prayer. Turn to God when those feelings of guilt come upon you. Don't run to other things, but run to God. Because in him, there is grace. There is good news for our sin, our guilt, and our shame. There's grace from above. The psalmist knows that there's one treatment for his disease. He knows that there's only one cure for the guilt and shame he feels, and it's God. So he confesses this in verse 4. 
But with you, there is forgiveness. With you, Lord, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, forgiveness invoking fear, like how does that work, right? If you forgive someone, you know, usually fear is not the response. So what, is, what does it mean that God's forgiveness invokes fear from us? Charles Spurgeon says it like this. There's forgiveness with thee. There's forgiveness with you, Lord, that thou mayest be loved and worshipped and served. God forg- God's forgiveness leads us to love, worship, and serve and revere him. Uh, I want to borrow and paraphrase from an illustration past, uh, Pastor Sinclair Ferguson used. Um, so the psalmist, he's in the darkness of his depths, right? He's in the depths, and he, he's in turmoil because of his sin. But he sees, he looks up, he cries up to God, and he sees God. He realizes that there's forgiveness in God. And when he looks up to God, what he sees is God's gracious smile upon him. And as the psalmist sees that gracious smile, it changes him. It moves him. It makes him want to love God, to live God, to follow him and obey him. Imagine that you're single and you just met someone. For your couples or spouses out there, imagine when you first met your wife or your husband. Now you two have been talking for a while. You know she likes you, he likes you, and vice versa. They know you like them too. And things are really good, and it's really like a honeymoon phase. Things are sweet. You set up a date for Friday night, right? You, you, you get all showered and cleaned up. You do your makeup. You get ready for this date. And you go out to meet them in Taiwan. And as they get out of the cab or they come out of the subway, your eyes lock. And the moment your eyes lock, you see the smile of that person, Right? And you smile back like an idiot, right? (laughs) There's something about that smile. You see that smile in the person that you like, and all that you want to do is do everything in your power to keep that person smiling. That's what God's forgiveness does to us. When we see the depths of our sin and we see the beauty of his grace and his forgiveness in our lives, when we see him smiling down on us, it changes us. It changes our hearts to want to pursue him, to love him, obey him, and follow him. That's what the psalmist is looking for here. It's more than absolution from his guilt, but he's looking for God. And so he continues in verse 5 and 6. He says, I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. What is the pilgrim doing now? He's slowing down. He's waiting for God. And what's he waiting for? What is his soul longing for? Is it simply just to have that guilt and shame taken care of? No. Is he waiting for just the forgiveness of sins? It's not just simply that. He's waiting for something greater. He's waiting for God himself. He's waiting to see that smile. He understands that fellowship with God, his relationship with God, was broken because of sin. And now his soul is longing for restoration. He's longing for relationship and intimacy with God. St. Augustine says this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
The pilgrim is longing for God. He is restless because sin has separated him from God. And so he's waiting on the Lord. He's waiting for him. And he says he waits like a watchman in the evening, more than a watchman for the morning, excuse me. And he says this twice. Every time, anytime you see in the Bible something coming out twice, you can think of it as an exclamation point. He's emphasizing it. He waits for God like a watchman waits for the morning. I spoke with someone this week who actually served in the military. And, uh, and, and during his time, he actually served as a watchman. And uh, it was interesting. It was really eye-opening the way he described what that work is like. Because um, he, he, he would describe it like this. It's like in those dark hours of the night, it is really cold and lonely. It's very desolate. You don't see much life. And as you're waiting there, you're on edge. You feel anxiety. You feel like there's a danger that can come at any moment. And so you're restless throughout the night. You're restless throughout the entire shift. But then when the morning comes, when the morning comes, there's this great relief. You see the sun come up. The warmth of the sun meets you. Your shift is over. The danger has passed. And you see your fellow soldiers, and that greeting is the sweetest greeting. You've made it through the night. That's how this pilgrim soul is longing for God. He's longing for God. Because without him, it's dangerous. It's cold. It's lonely. There's just so much restlessness. And so the psalmist is waiting for him. And he hopes in God's promises. He hopes in God's promises. As this pilgrim sings these songs, he's on his journey to Jerusalem for the major Jewish festivals. And at these festivals, what they, would, um, what they were to do is make animal sacrifices for the atonement of their sins. So they would get bulls and goats. They would place the sins on the, of the people on these goats and bulls and sacrifice them. But what this psalmist is looking forward to, the promise that he's looking forward to of forgiveness, is not in the sacrificial ritual that he's about to go experience, but it's in the greater promise of God that he would be the redeemer for his people. He was looking forward to what he did not know fully about. He knew that God would send a redeemer one day to get rid of the animal sacrifices and finally pay the sacrifice for the, uh, the sins of his people once and for all. This pilgrim knew it in part, and he put his hope in that. But for us, we know it in full. We look back to Jesus Christ and the promise given to us in him. Because it was him, Christ, who came down, the Son of God, that went into the deepest and darkest depths for us. He went down further than what we experienced or what we can even imagine with our own sin. And why is that? Because he was the son of God. Without any sin, he was sinless, the sinless lamb of God. He took on the sins of all his people. He went on that cross. He was crucified and he was died and he suffered the full wrath of God. He went into the deepest and darkest depths for us. And he was risen again, victorious. And for all those who trust in him and his finished work, there is healing, there is restoration, and there is forgiveness for our sins. We look 
to Christ. We wait on God. We put our hope in him when guilt drives us to the depths. Put your trust in him. Rest in his grace that he has shown you through the cross. His grace is far greater than any depths you might think you're experiencing with your sin. Romans 5.20 says, where sin increased, his grace abounds all the more. His grace abounds all the more. There are places in our hearts that are so dark and so vile, we wouldn't dare ever repeat that to anyone and share with them the things that we've thought, the things that we've desired, or even the things that we've done. Christ doesn't shy away from that, but he goes into those places. He's been to the deepest and darkest depths, and he's come out of it, and he brings us out of it as well. Dane Orland uh, describes this beautiful grace to us like this. God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are, there, are, are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost, and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. Church, when you're in the depths, and your sin and guilt and shame is driving you down, turn to God. Trust in his grace that abounds further than your depths. And finally, we're going to look at hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord. Let's look down and read verses 7 and 8 together. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. If you take a step back and look at this psalm, there's quite an amazing progression that takes place. The pilgrim starts off in the depths with absolute despair. He's troubled by the guilt and weight of his sin. And so he, wait, and he, he waits on God. He cries out to him. He trusts in his promises, and he finds forgiveness. And he starts to take this ascent out of the depths until finally in here, in verse 7, what is he doing? Look at where he's landed. Look at where he's began and look at where he's landed. He says, O Israel, talking to the people of Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. He's in the depths of despair and now he's at a place where he can exhort and encourage Israel, his people, to also trust in the Lord. Have you ever found yourself in despair before? Do you have the confidence or the ability to love and serve others and exhort them to do something like this? It's hard. When you're down there in the depths, it's really hard to do something like this. Imagine tomorrow you begin a new job. Uh, you, you begin a job as a professor at a university, right? And they've given you the title of Professor of Nuclear Physics. How many of you would be excited? You guys would be like, oh no, what am I going to do tomorrow? You would start to get into despair. And you come to that lecture, 
what would you say? Would you be able to teach anything? Would you be able to exhort them, provide any knowledge, any wisdom, any guidance whatsoever? Absolutely not. You know nothing of nuclear physics. You have no idea. You've never experienced it. You've never studied it. And with this psalmist, he's in the depths of despair. He doesn't know where to turn except for God. He experiences God's forgiveness. He waits for him. He experiences the beauty of his promises. He knows God's promises. And it's brought him out of that depth to a place where he can now encourage Israel, his people, to also hope in the Lord. Derek Kinder says it like this. There is a steady climb towards assurance. And at the other end, there is encouragement for the many from the experience of one. And that's what we're called to do as ones who've been and tasted the depths of the, uh, the, the bitterness of the darkness and experienced God's abounding grace in our lives, we are now called to exhort one another to hope in God. For those who don't have their trust in him or hope in him, when we meet those people and they feel the guilt and weight, the shame from their sin, we turn them to Christ. We give them the gospel, help them to see that goodness and beauty. And for this gathering of believers, right, because we all still struggle with sin. We all still struggle with the guilt and shame that comes with it, right? We have sins that habitually just eat away at us, things that we can't stop doing. There are sins that condemn us and think that we're unworthy of God's love and his grace. There are sins that, sins that bring us shame where it turns us away from God. We try to hide from him. him. Sins that, you know, we cannot forgive ourselves for. For this highlight reel of all of our sins in our lives that you don't dare wish to tell others. For all of that, we gather with each other and point each other to Christ and say, put your hope in him. Wait on him and his promises. Because he took that plunge into the depths of sin and death and he came back victorious so that all of your sins are now covered and atoned for. And he now smiles down on you because you are forgiven and loved and accepted because of Christ's finished work. He smiles down on you. Wait for the Lord. He will give you rest. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening, and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.